Good morning. Welcome to all of you here and to those watching online as well. Good morning. Before I jump into this, let's take a moment and uh, just and pray for our moms. If you're sitting next to a mom, just lay a hand on her. Let's, uh, let's pray together for our moms. Father in heaven, thank you for every mother in this room. Thank you for every individual that has given birth. And we pray for them, and we thank you for them, and what they represent to this community, to this church, and to their families. We thank you for them. We commit them to you. And we pray as well, Father, for those that are to whom this day brings a mixed blessing, thinking maybe about missing a mother or about uh, unable to become a mother or the various reasons, Lord, that this day brings sadness. We pray that the comfort of Jesus would be so real and clear to you this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 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 Okay. Good morning again. Family is a universal language, right? Wherever I've been around the world, the first thing people want to talk about is family. And now with iPhones, we can share pictures and bring them back. Let me show you a few to uh, where places I've been. Just a couple. Um, let's see this first one. This is uh, a couple, a Burmese couple from Myanmar. This was absolutely the most desolate the most poor place, impoverished, I have ever been. And uh, this was, the, the conditions would have just, um, they would have just been, if you'd have seen them, would have amazed you. And yet they were very proud to have their picture taken as we shared some time together. This next picture is a family from uh, East Asia. And we were with them on a trip there where uh, we were a part of gathering some couples that do ministry in this couple, in this country. And many of the couples had never met each other's families. And so actually Linworth helped to financially support that, to make it happen. These couples came from this country. Some traveled more than 24 hours to be at this event. This was one of the families that we met. And I got about 18 of these, and they're all just as remarkably beautiful as this one. This third picture, uh, you might remember Victoria and Obi, and they were part of our church for, for a while, and they are from Nigeria, and they are actually wearing here traditional Niger Nigerian dress. This was their, their new family color, so to speak, and they took colors from their uh, from Victoria's side and colors from Obi's side, and they came up then with their own new pattern, which they will pass on in their family. And then finally, this, this couple is actually not from out of the country. They are from 1947. This is my father and mother's wedding day. And um, we just lost my mom, as you know, on April 13th. And uh, that's part of my story, part of my family. Family is a universal language. And the book of Proverbs casts a beautiful vision for marriage and the family. It's not about physical comforts. It's not about material wealth, but it's a place where relationships thrive, where our children's identity 
and self-confidence takes root. A place where love and acceptance are learned. A refuge from life storms and so needed right now. In Myers yesterday, I snapped a picture of this definition of family I thought appropriate. Family, our refuge from the storm, our link to the past, our bridge to the future. Indeed, a healthy family is our centering point. Well, it's so needed right now, isn't it? When there is all this kind of cultural upheaval that we've experienced, with so many new pressures to navigate, one of the things that can get lost is our commitment to our family, our commitment to our spouse. We might think we're doing a lot of good, but if we lose these core commitments, even the good we do will be short-lived. Single or married, kids or no kids, grandparent or empty nester, we are all part of a family. And the wisdom of Proverbs about family is so critical, and especially in the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. This morning, I'm going to follow a simple outline from Ray Ortland's book on Proverbs with these three points. One, husbands and wives growing in wisdom towards one another. Two, children growing in wisdom towards their parents. And three, parents growing in wisdom towards their children. May the Holy Spirit lead us this morning. Now, the very context of Proverbs sets the stage for us to talk about family. Remember, Proverbs is written by a father to his son, as well as other royal princes. And throughout, we have felt a father's affection, a father's concern, a father's heart. And in the beginning of the book, that concern translated to warnings. And these warnings included wrong friends and wrong women. At the very end of Proverbs, in its climax, that concern about a wrong woman translates to a vision for the right one. The vision of the kind of a woman that if his son found her, his life would be incredibly blessed. Proverbs 31, 10, and 11 says this. A wife of noble character who can find. She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. Now, Ortland says that noble character here, translated more literally, is a woman of strength. This poem goes on to say that she is enterprising, hardworking, financially wise, and she plans ahead. She provides both for her family and her household and is kind to the poor. Her husband's reputation in the community is boosted because of her character. Verse 25 says of her, she is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. This poem concludes with the beautiful outcome of the way of her way of life. Her children will rise up and praise her. There's your first application, by the way. If your mother is living, here's your application. Today, rise up and praise, praise her. Her husband speaks well of her privately and publicly. He will continually convey she is the only one for him. 
She will feel loved and honored and valued. And outcomes like this are so rare, whether we see it on screen or in real life, that they literally take our breath away. In verse 30, Solomon reminds his son that flattery and physical beauty hold out a promise that cannot be sustained. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. In other words, son, aim for a woman whose beauty is grounded in her love for God, her love for the community, her compassion for the disadvantaged. Now, what role does the husband play in this character formation? I believe quite a bit. We read earlier that he has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. In other words, he recognizes, he appreciates she is his greatest earthly treasure. His confidence in her is an extension of his faith that she is a gift from God. This honor nourishes her soul and brings out the best in her. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Now, some of you men might be feeling, I have not trusted nor valued my wife as she deserves. And the first thing you must do is go back to your purpose as a husband. What does the word husband mean? Ortland points out that we have a related English word. It is husbandry. That is cultivation. When the word is used as a verb, it means to cultivate. Husband, this is a job God has given you to do, to cultivate and to nurture your wife. Ortland wrote this. He said, husbands, your lifetime impact, your lifetime impact on your wife should be that her life opens up more and more and as she's enabled to become all that God wants her to be and God is calling you as her husband to so care for her that in her latter years she will be thinking what a great life I've had my husband understood me he cared for me he inspired me to grow in Christ amen I think for some of you husbands, we feel like, okay, let's just quit right now and let me get, get after to get to doing that. Now, wives, you might be thinking as well, my husband does not love me like that. What can I do? Well, first, it's important to remember that many scenarios potentially contribute to this. Your husband may not be spiritually alive or spiritually growing thus lacking critical resources. He may have a developmental challenge of one sort or another. He might face obstacles from his own family of origin that take time and intentional discipleship to overcome. Your primary focus, wife, should not be on changing him, but on your own relationship with God. Your security must first come from him the best chance that you have to bring the best out in your husband is you finding contentment with Jesus. And believe me, I'm not suggesting this is at all easy. I know it is a steep challenge, but you can do it. You can do it with the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Let's go to our second point. That's husbands and wives growing in wisdom towards one another. How about children growing in wisdom towards their parents? And this is not only for young children, it's also for adult children, because even into adulthood, our attitudes towards our parents continue to be very formative. Let's look at three verses here together, beginning with Proverbs 15, 20, 20, 20, and 23, 25. One, a wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish man despises his mother. Secondly, if someone curses their father or mother, their lamp will be snuffed out in pitch darkness. And thirdly, may your father and mother rejoice. May she who gave you birth... May she who gives birth you birth be joyful. I can say it. When a son or daughter makes wise decisions, when they exhibit strength of character, no matter how old the parent is, it brings joy to them. Now you might be thinking, Chris, that's obvious. That's Captain Obvious, right? Why even write it down? But the Holy Spirit regards it as worth while to put in writing. In doing so, he invites us to dig below the surface, to reflect. In striking contrast between the wise and foolish, notice that wisdom is revealed not only in conduct, but in one's very attitude towards their parents. The wise value their parents. This added, the, the wise consider their happiness very important. This attitude reflects an understanding, a perspective that matches the pattern of how God put families together. Now notice the other option. The foolish man despises his mother or curses his parents. This hatred for them or this desire for their unhappiness points to something amiss in their own soul. Now, why would a son or daughter despise their parents? Well, there really are lots of reasons, aren't there? We might be tempted to despise them when we become old enough to realize that they're not perfect, but actually very human. We see behind the curtain of their lives like the lion did with Oz, and their godlike status comes crashing down amidst the rubble of their humanness. We might be tempted to despise them when we recognize how their inadequacies as a parent turned into our insecurities, or their weaknesses turned into our liabilities. We might despise them when they grow old, and their strength withers, and the cycle of care has turned, and now, and now they are the child, and we are the parent. And their frailty reminds us of our own, and the sheer terror of it comes out sideways in our attitudes towards them. Or it might just be, as is the case for many, that, that their mom and dad were very broken that they were not parented well themselves, 
or they were abused by their parents. And without any intervening grace to break the cycle, they did the same to you. This is so tragic on multiple levels. And and if that describes your family of origin, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. I'm afraid there are lots of reasons one might be tempted to despise or wish evil on their parents. But there's a warning here. What does it mean that their light will be snuffed out in pitch darkness? I think it means this, that the outright wish for evil to your parents results in a darkness that casts doom over your life. Mm. Mm, man. The refusal to forgive your parents, remaining embittered towards them, actually ties you deeper to them. And it makes the transmission of their sin to you inevitable. Why? Because your whole life is being lived in a reactive mode. Your life is not defined defined by a positive forward vision. Rather, it is defined by a negative backwards direction. When you determine to run from someone or to punish them, you run in a circle right back to them. And the sin you carry to your generation, to your generation, may not look the same. It might come out in a different way, but the dysfunction will be carried on. Your attitude towards them still casts a dark shadow over you. So God's ancient wisdom has a warning, a warning you to resist this pull. It has a way of seeing life that empowers us, empowers each of us to work through these inevitable disappointments as we are awakened to them. The wisdom does not deny wrongdoing of parents. Absolutely not. It does not deny reality. But rather it seeks to honor the pattern that God designed. The role given to parents, the honor due them, even if for nothing else, simply the reality that they brought you into this world. She gave you birth. He helped bring you into this world. So here would be some of the commitments that we would make to apply God's wisdom. Children to parents. I will value the happiness of my parents and seek for ways to contribute to it. Whatever their failures, I will honor the reality that they brought me into this world. I will look for good in their life and appreciate them for it. I will honor the authority God gave them. I will not despise them in their weakness, emotional or physical, knowing that I am only bringing condemnation on myself. If I was disappointed, I will remember their humanity. If I was hurt and sinned against, even if they are gone, I will seek to walk down this pathway of forgiveness, knowing that that reflects living in Jesus' kingdom. I will forgive first for his sake, not for theirs, nor for my own. I will forgive first to please him, and secondly, 
that I might be set free from living reactively and then break the cycle of sin and dysfunction before it goes on one more generation. This is the power of God. This is the power of God. The effect of God's wisdom. As we discussed this topic this week, um, Alex, our student director, so wisely said this, you are not doomed to recreate the environment you grew up in. Isn't that good news? That is good news. You're not doomed to recreate the environment that you grew up in. And it is by applying God's ancient wisdom. Let's go to that third point. How about this one? Parents growing in wisdom towards their children. What can we say about this? Oh, man. Oh, man, the Proverbs has so much to say. I'm just going to give you three, three principles. Three principles. Remember that Proverbs takes these lofty concepts of the Mosaic law. It takes these lofty concepts, and then it breaks them down into bite-sized, easily memorizable pieces that you can apply every day. And I'm not going to read it, but... Again, you can read Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. That's one of these uh, calls to teach your children. It is the theme verse of our family ministry. But Proverbs breaks that mosaic law down into very uh, bite-sized pieces. Here's one. Proverbs 1, 8. The writer said, listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Now, this phraseology is repeated through Proverbs, and it is interesting in that it connects and combines both teaching of mom and teaching of dad. And the principle here is parents speak with a united voice. In my personal experience, in my counseling, I have found this to be one of the most difficult challenges any couple will face. During our kids' high school years, it's quite some time now, 10, 10 plus years ago, the years when they were testing the limits, when the issues were, became more thorny and were highly emotional, it was no longer just two kids fighting over the premium seat in the minivan. My goodness, think about it. Life and death battles over the premium seat in the minivan. But the issues for adolescent teens becomes more difficult. And for Louise and me, we both agree these were the most difficult years of our marriage. Our temperaments, our vision of parenting, our own filters, the perspectives we brought from our own family of origin, all began to clash. Our relationship mirrored a combustible chemistry experiment. One part common passion for our kids. Another part, the sense that the consequences were now a little more serious, a little more far-reaching. And third part, all these situations that just seemed to require razor-thin judgments. Oh, I hated those. I just hated them. Throw all that into a beaker and turn up the Bunsen burner 
And for Louise and me, our pre-existing differences were heated to new extremes. Such a challenging time for us, and yet, and yet the drive, the drive to speak with the united voice was a powerful force for good in our marriage and for our spiritual growth. We had to humble ourselves. We had to listen better. We had to reflect on our own internal struggles. We had to address our own character issues that were clouding our quest for oneness. We had to clear away the past and confront issues from the way we were parented that were obstructing our oneness. And though hidden from us in the moment, it was actually a season of great growth. Again, it was hidden in the moment. But now, with the vantage point of time, we can say it was a season of great personal and spiritual growth as our characters were hammered on the anvil. And I mean sparks flying. It was iron sharpening iron. And that time could have divided us, brought instability into our family, but the wisdom of God empowered us to slowly but surely grow into more oneness in Christ, the, the vision of a Christian marriage. Let's look at another one. First one is speak with united voice. How about this idea as well? Proverbs 22.6. Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Here's the principle. Invest heavily during the most formative years of your children. Medical psychologists and doctors tell us today that the personality, the foundations of a child's personality, the brain development are all formed at a very early age. I've heard reports up to 80% by age six. Well, the ancient proverb told us this 3,000 years ago, right? Other versions say, train up your child. So from the very start, because as a believing parent who has the scriptures as your guidebook, you have a sense from the start of where you want to go a vision, the values that you want to impart. Parents have a partnership with God in teaching and training a child to walk in a way that reflects their design. Both their corporate design, their calling to love God and to love others, as well as their individual design. The parent calling out the unique gifts, the unique inclinations of their child by virtue of being a student of them learning how God has wired them. Another verse that speaks to this call for investment is Proverbs 29, 15. A rod and a reprimand impart wisdom, but children left to themselves disgrace their mother. Every child, indeed, needs a foundation of affection, love, and affirmation. Each child needs a positive atmosphere of acceptance. For Christ's followers, this is our beginning point, right? It's the way God parents us. 
We must start there. But you and me, right, we need more than that to become Christ-like. In the same way, affirmation alone will not develop confident and joyful children. Developing character is like nourishing a growing plant. It will flourish in the right environment, but it also must be cut back at times so that it can continue to grow in a healthy way. Training and correction is needed because our children, your baby, your cute baby, your innocent baby, looks innocent, did not begin with a clean slate. As cute as they are, and especially your baby, which is the cutest, they don't begin life in perfect innocence. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far away. Now, let me just clear the ground on this and just, again, to say that there's nothing in here that justifies physical abuse. Let's just be clear on that in terms of discipline. Nothing in the Bible ever condones physical abuse. At the same time, I want to camp here for a moment on this scripture because there is a lot of right theology encased in this bite-sized saying that will massively impact your parenting. The word folly means the willful refusal to make moral choices. Ortland points out that folly means children do not want to grow up and enter into adulthood with its moral demands. Folly is deep inside the heart of a child. I don't know if you've observed this, but I have on a couple occasions, that children often demand that their siblings and their parents adjust to their immediate wants. Right? You ever seen that? Maybe once or twice? Throwing tantrums if they do not get their way, screaming at the top of their lungs as leverage, and throwing the family into utter chaos. Why are they this way? Why? Is it because you've not loved them adequately? Is it because their self-esteem lags from your neglect? Is it because you have failed to create the perfectly balanced environment with just the right amount of playtime? Perfect snacks? Socially correct toys? Friends from other such enlightened families and all of it finely tuned for the precise month of their development, stage of development. Is it due to your failure that they scream bloody murdy? Bloody... Let's try that again. Is it due to your failure that they scream bloody murder to their sister or push their brother off the slide? That actually happened in my family, but we will give no names. No. The answer is no. They do it, and this is a uniquely Christian answer, they do it at a foundational level because they carry in their genes the sin of Adam. The sin of putting self before God. They are bent that way. It is in them. They sin because they are sinners. I get it. It's not a popular answer. This is deep within your child 
And I understand there's also developmental things here along the way as far as our behaviors. But this is still deep within your child, and it is in you, by the way, as well. Now, this is where the theological nuance comes in, and I think we must think here theologically. We must be somewhat nuanced in this. Now, on top of that foundation, can your lack of love, can your out-of-control anger, can your passivity add fuel? Yes, of course. But it is important for you as a parent to see the nuance, to see clearly the theological truth. For if you blame yourself for every selfish act of your child, you will parent from guilt. And that is not love. And that is a recipe for unhealthiness. You will blur the line between their responsibility and yours, effectually disempowering your child. They will not learn self-honor nor healthy boundaries. It will make them more dependent on you and your approval in an unhealthy way. Now, on the other side, if when things go sideways with your kids, if you never evaluate your responsibility, if you never take a look inside, then indeed you may be shutting yourself off to changes God is trying to make in your life. You see, this is an answer that you'll never hear from any other place but the church of Jesus. You won't hear this in any other place but the church. You see that knowing Scripture, applying theology to the realities of your parenting helps you keep this tension, this balance between the child's responsibilities and yours. So critical. So critical. Now this verse also underscores the need for discipline. And I will leave the practicals to that for our other teaching forums. But let me say this here. It is important, parents, that you develop a strategy for discipline and that you apply it unitedly and consistently as best as you can. If you are perpetually letting your child win in the battle of the will, either from guilt or fear of being the parent or fear of rejection or avoiding conflict, you will negatively impact the development of your child. Something else in life is going to have to teach them that lesson, and the world does it much more painfully. So, we began with Proverbs 22.6. Start children off the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. This certainly has a broad application But its main application, its first application, is your children's spiritual life. The admonition for every parent to start their child is to cultivate the heart of your son or daughter for a genuinely spiritual life. In this vein, the goal is not simply good moral behaviors. The goal is not simply avoiding a life wasted on drugs or alcohol. The goal is not merely graduating college or getting a good job or finding a good spouse or even middle-class respectability. The goal is a heart for God. That's what you're aiming for. 
I'm not going to read it here this morning because I need to keep moving, but in Proverbs chapter 3, we see the father going after the heart of the son. Solomon understood that the essence of the law was not external behaviors, but rather he understood it was the internal righteousness the loves, the affections, what one loves is what will dictate how one behaves. That's why he said, you can look it up later, that's why he said, write them on the tablet of your heart. <laughs> what is he alluding to? He's alluding to the law and it not being mere behavior, but aiming for the heart. I'll say a little bit more about this later. But we're aiming for the heart. In that verse, Proverbs 22, 6, I want to say that this training will not leave them. Even if they do not follow it, it will haunt them, <laughs> but it will not leave them. Of course, in the end, this is not an ironclad promise. It is a probability. You might train, and the training is rejected. It still requires a work of the Holy Spirit to grab the heart of your child. It is by grace. All you can do is to cultivate the ground and plant the seeds. You can't make it rain, and you can't make it grow. Only God can do that. You know, as parents, some of us take too much credit when our kids turned out as we envisioned. Others of us place too much blame on ourselves when that vision crumbles. What we do is important in our own obedience to God. But the God factor in our kids' lives far outweighs our human efforts. And in that same vein, just briefly, this last verse and principle, Proverbs 14, 26. Whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for their children it will be a refuge. And the principle, your love for God creates stability and security for your children. Parents, the very best thing you can do for your children is keep growing in your love for God. That includes your adult children. The spillover effect on their lives will be confidence, self-honor, and a sense of hope. The culture is always looking for the latest and greatest way to raise confident and secure children. But the advice of one generation is typically upset and overturned by the next God's ancient wisdom has not changed through the millennia. This principle, along with the others, is part of the ancient wisdom of God. It is husbands and wives growing in wisdom towards one another. It is children growing in wisdom towards their parents. And it is parents growing in wisdom towards their children. Let's wrap up and say some closing comments. Husbands and wives, you've been given a vision. See one another as your greatest treasure. Children, including adult children, you've been given a vision. Value the happiness of your parents. Honor them, even if it's only for bringing you into this world. Parents, you've been given a vision. Invest heavily, particularly in those formative years. And parents, you might consider attending our next parenting conference. It will be Saturday, August 7th. I'm going to give a plug here for it. 
It's an in-person conference. It's August the 7th. Rich has arranged for a nationally known speaker to come in. And this couple, their specialty is how to shepherd a child's heart. How to shepherd their heart. And so there's certainly going to be more details to come. But, but circle that date, August the 7th. All of this is quite a vision, isn't it? And indeed, I want to tell you that following Jesus and applying his wisdom often, many times, leads to tremendous results. And many of you have experienced that. You learned these principles early on. You raised your kids with faith. You applied these principles. And today, you're experiencing the blessing of it. And you're so grateful for what God has done. You're so grateful you were exposed to these things early on. And I rejoice with you. Praise God for that. Praise God. It's good. It is also true that others of you applied these principles the best you could, maybe not perfectly, but you did it with all your heart, and yet the results have been much more mixed. And you asked the question, what if I do everything God asked? What if I prioritize my family over career or my goals? Does that guarantee or entitle me to having everything work out according to my plan? Well, indeed, that was a little bit of a leading question, was it not? Decades of pastoring, three decades, decades of observation as well as my own personal experience has shown me that nearly every family faces sadness, faces visions that did not materialize, unanswered prayers, at least seemingly unanswered prayers, and heartache. You might have done it all the right way in your mind, and it still goes south. You know, these ideals that we have heard today, these ideals that we tremble at. We tremble with, can I do it? These ideals we aspire to often expose the messiness of our weakness or the weakness of others. And it is with the ones we love that our weakness is most apparent. The personal weaknesses revealed through my parenting journey have been some of the most painful yet some of the most needed for me to become more like Jesus. I have often asked the Father, was there no other way for me to grow? And his answer, I think, has been no. This was the only path. It is through the ones we love the most that Jesus often brings the essential rebuilding of our character and working towards that beautiful messiness Working towards that beauty through our messiness and the messiness of our family can only be done in union with Jesus, abiding in him, remaining in his love, in the power of the Holy Spirit. My aunt and uncle told Louise and me, when our kids were little, that your kids will bring you some of the greatest joys and rewards but they will also drive you to the cross more than anything else. And their prophecy was true. But who do we find at the cross? We find Jesus, who died in weakness, 
in the messiness of his tears, his blood and dirt and sweat and urine. He died in weakness that we might put on beauty and glory. And he rose from the dead that our glory might be eternal. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, Father in heaven, you are our Father. And we rest in your acceptance of us. If we feel this morning like we have failed, we rest in your acceptance of us. If we sense this morning, Father, that we don't know you, we're not connected to you, and there's no way that I could ever do these things in my own strength, and I want to invite you, Jesus, into my life today. I want union with you so that I can do this. Then right now, ask Christ into your life. If you're here in person, if you're watching online, ask Christ to come into your life. He can give you the power to become the husband, the wife, the parent, the child. You can move towards these aspirations. Father, Give us the gifts that we need. Give us the gifts that we need to become the people that you called us to be. The son, the daughter, the husband, the wife, the child. It's in your name we pray.